If you're driving down I-10 speeding, whether a policeman saw you doing it or not, you would get a ticket no matter what because you're breaking the law. That would be fair. But a lot of people don't like that. You know, they're like, life's not fair. And it's like, man, praise the Lord that it's not fair because every time you did something wrong, if fair was fair, then you would be punished for it. How many of you have gotten away for doing something that was wrong? All of us have. And sometimes we even take advantage. Most of us have smiled with a feeling of justice as we pass a reckless driver who's finally been pulled over by the police. Yet when we push the speed limit or violate the law, we hope that the officer will just let it go. We all like it when things are fair, at least as long as it pertains to others. All of us love to receive grace, but we are not nearly as quick to give it. We live in a very unfair world. Bad things happen to good people and the wicked prosper. As Pastor Mark reminds us in today's message, We all have been given an incredible gift of grace. We deserve death because of our sin, but Christ offers us eternal life and freedom. Well, let's open our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 1 and join Pastor Mark with today's edition of Come Alive. It says, Now there was a certain man from Ramathaim Zophim of the mountains of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jerohim. I'm having a hard time. Jerohim, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. And he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. This man went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Also the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. And whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Peninnah, and he would, or to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. So it was year by year when she went to the house of the Lord that she provoked her. Therefore, she wept and she did not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat, and why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? So Hannah arose after she had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. And now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord, and she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. And then she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall come upon his head. And it happened as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli watched her mouth, and now Hannah spoke in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli thought she was drunk. So Eli said to her, how long will you be drunk? 
Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant a wicked woman, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief I have spoken until now. And then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition, which you have asked of him. And she said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. And so the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Last week we learned about Elkanah. Remember he, that he had taken matters into his own hands by marrying two wives. And we went back all the way to the Genesis account and shown how God only meant uh, man to have one wife, not multiple wives. And so by taking on the second wife, um, he took on the second wife because Hannah was most likely his first wife. It doesn't say that she was, but it says that he loved her most. So that's where we would get that um, and think that she, she was the first wife and she was barren. And so he marries Peninnah and somebody that would be able to have children so he can have some kids. And back in those agrarian cultures, they would have multiple children to help on the farm and do different things. So we also saw a term last week, Lord of hosts. And, and we talked about that being um, the Lord of the armies of Israel. And it's the first time this term's mentioned in scripture. It's mentioned nearly 300 other times in scripture, but here's the very first time we see that. Um, it describes God as a sovereign Lord of the host of the angelic beings as well as the host of the stars and the armies of Israel. And so we know that God directs history. And what are all histories? When you think about it, if you think about the word history, if you break it up to his story, if it's God, if, if, if you truly believe that there is a God of the universe, a God, a Lord of hosts, then it would be his story from beginning of time until today and at this moment, it would still be his story. And so we, we look at these that it's God manifesting himself throughout history. And again, we would call it his story. And so he is the author of all creation. We see in recorded history in the Bible and elsewhere that the hand of God is at work in the affairs of man being able to bring a savior into the world. Um, God allows certain circumstances to happen. And, and some people will be like, well, that's a cruel God. That's not a loving God. But it is a very loving God because he's allowed us to have free will, free to choose what we want to choose. I mean, if you were forced to love someone, uh, you could basically build a robot to tell you that that robot loved you every day if you really needed that. But isn't it better uh, when, when somebody voluntarily loves you? And, and some people are like, well, I, I just don't like that. Well, yeah, you do if you're married. Because hopefully you didn't kidnap your spouse and force them to marry you and force them to tell you that they love you. And so when you read in the Bible and you see that God loves us so much to send us a Savior, to save us from our sins, to save us from his wrath, and then some of you might be like, uh-huh. So he's not a loving God, yet he is a loving God because the Bible tells us he's just and fair. And what that means is we were talking about fair this morning in our leadership meeting. Fair is this, a real simple definition. Fair would be if you're driving down I-10 speeding, whether a policeman saw you doing it or not, you would get a ticket no matter what because you're breaking the law. That would be fair. But a lot of people don't like that. You know, They're like, life's not fair. And it's like, man, praise the Lord that it's not fair because every time you did something wrong, if fair was fair then you would be punished for it. How many of you have gotten away for doing something that was wrong? All of us have. And sometimes we even take advantage. 
So we're saved. We need a Savior to be bought back, to be redeemed from God's wrath. And so when you read the book of Judges in the Old Testament, and and you shouldn't miss the fact that this is the book of of no king. The book of Judges is the book of no king, having no leader left in the nation, and the nation's in an uproar. Anarchy was the norm. And so here, when you have that, and then you read that without leadership, man, no matter how religious, no matter how holy or well-meaning, usually does what's right in his own eyes. Now, if we really thought about it, and we thought, well, okay, cool, everybody should do what they please, then our children, being different, should be able to do what they please within our own household and not be punished for what's right in their own eyes. But we, we don't live by that rule. Uh, but we personally as adults want to live by that rule for some reason. But So the Bible tells us that man usually does what's right or tries to do what's right in his own eyes. Israel was not a united people during the days of Joshua, which is another book in the Bible. Joshua was the second leader after Moses, but rather a loose confederation of tribes with God-appointed judges ruling in widely separated areas. So there were these judges, just like we have judges in courts. There were these judges that had to weigh matters of the people. But in the dark days of the judges, a love story takes place. And we're just kind of running through a few Old Testament books prior to uh, 1 Samuel. But a love story takes place, and it's recorded in the book of Ruth. There's a guy named Boaz, and he marries Ruth. And they have a child named Obed. Obed is born. And then Obed has a kid, and his name is Jesse. And then Jesse has a kid, and his name is David. And then from that lineage, we know that Jesus Christ was born. And it goes back to the genealogies when you look back at who uh, Mary's parents were and her grandparents, and you can see that it all lines back up to David. So during the period of Judges, the Israelites were in a mess because they had lacked godly leadership. And so the priesthood was defiled. There's not any sustained prophetic message from the Lord, and the law was being ignored throughout the land. That's what's what's taking place. So just a little bit of a history, because last week we did kind of a topical study. We said we would do a little bit of an intro to 1 Samuel to see how we got to where we're at. And so that would be it. So God often solved these kinds of problems by sending the unlikeliest thing. You ever notice sometimes when you read the Bible, as you travel through it, you find out that this unlikely little thing tends to show up, and it's the thing that God uses to help save someone or a people? It's a baby, right? Look throughout history, Moses. Well, we read about him being a baby, and you're like, well, yeah, everybody's a baby. Of course they are. But there's not every baby is mentioned in the Bible. It doesn't talk about them being babies, but God does. Babies usher in new life and a new beginning, just like a new year. So these new beginnings seem to be to begin with nothing. And so babies are kind of like God's announcements that he cares about his people and he knows their needs and that we have these needs and it's, it's at work on their behalf. And, and so these little babies tend to, to grow. In Genesis 30 verses 1 through 2, Jacob asks Rachel, am I in the place of God who withheld the fruit of the womb? And if you think about this, when Hannah's complaint comes through about not being able to have a child, we see that she understands that it's because of God that people get babies. It's just not happen chance or accidents. And this tells us their conception and their birth is a miracle that only God can do. Only God can birth a child. Only God can develop something inside of a, a woman's body and grow it and make 
you. And so you are that miracle. So God will sometimes use barren women to make an event seem even greater. And when you think about it, John the Baptist, he was a baby, a barren woman. Hannah is another one. And so you cannot read the records of the past without seeing the hand of God writing the history of mankind and including in your own lives. So today we're going to be introduced to Hannah, whose name means a woman of grace. She had almost everything an Israelite woman of 1100 BC could want, almost. She didn't have a baby. She had a husband that had social standing. His roots are spelled out for us. Moderate wealth, genuine affection, faithful piety, and even the antics of Hophni and Phinehas, who tested everybody's piety. But there was this problem. Hannah has this slight problem here. And, you know, though she had Elkanah, who is greater than 10 sons, you know, this guy, I mean, he must really think a lot of himself. And he probably did a lot for her because he loved her. But she really didn't have him when you think about it. She, she shared him with Peninnah, an overly fertile, mouthy thorn in the flesh, when you kind of think about it. I mean, because she constantly brings up her kids. And what parent doesn't like to talk about their children? You know, except for maybe my mom and dad. But, you know, other than that, most of your parents might talk about you guys. I know I love talking about my kids and what they do and that Ace is crazy. And most of you, well, you know, you might not ever meet my son, but you'll know him if you spend any time here. And, and my daughter, Elia, you know, and, and I love talking about my children. I love watching them grow. And then you meet grandparents. And grandparents love talking about their grandchildren even more than parents love talking about their kids. And those are some great things. But Hannah and Elkanah, you know, they have a problem. And, uh, they have no children. And so if you look at verse 1, where we'll start, again, what we read through there, we'll pick up in verse 2, I'm sorry, and it says, and he had two wives, the name of one was Hannah, the name of the other, Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. And this man went up from his city yearly to worship. Last week, we talked about him being a, a, a guy who worships. He, he obviously loves the Lord. And um, yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh, also the two sons, Eli, of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. And whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to his wife, Peninnah, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. And so this problem at home was not entirely new. The Lord had closed Hannah's womb. That simple fact was enough that the, the aggravation was worse, especially when it comes to Peninnah um, constantly bragging about her kids, and what they would have to do is pack up once a year, travel to the temple in Shiloh to worship. It was just kind of a requirement. And so on this trip, you know, probably in the tent or something, these two probably never bumped into each other. But on the road trip down to Shiloh, there was probably some antics going on, and Peninnah decides to pick on her. You know, Hannah's probably got some luggage, and, and Peninnah's probably like, yeah, too bad you don't have anyone to carry your luggage for you. You know, uh, you know, I could loan you one of my kids and probably little jokes like if she dropped something, oh, why don't you have one of your kids? Oh, you don't have kids, you know, and you know how people jest with each other. Well, this really bothered Hannah. Look at verse five. It says, but to Hannah, uh, I'm sorry, verse six, and her rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable. She did it on purpose. See what happens. We talked last week about Elkanah taking matters into his own hand, having these two wives. One was loved. One was not loved. 
And so Peninnah, the unloved one, probably thought, well, you know what? I'm going to make life rough for both of these characters. And so she does. She, she provokes her. And therefore, she wept and she didn't eat. So they show up to worship and there's a big feast and all this party. And, and Hannah probably was so sick and tired of all the jesting and all the provoking that she couldn't eat. And so she didn't eat, it says. And it seems a bit unfair that gracious Hannah, who would never, you know, lash out. We never read of her lashing out verbally or physically at Peninnah, but Peninnah does. Notice with me in verse 5 and 6, it's mentioned that the Lord had closed her womb a couple of times in those verses. And then it says, a year-by-year pestering, pernicious Peninnah just kept pouring it on and wouldn't leave her alone. And we could call her razor tongue Peninnah. She saw to it that Hannah was harassed at every opportunity, and we have to understand that Hannah, you, some of us might be thinking, well, couldn't she just stay at home? Couldn't she just kick it at home by herself and maybe watch TV or something? No, she couldn't. She, it was not allowed. You had to travel to Shiloh. Shiloh was the house of God. It was her duty as well as the duty of all Hebrews to go before the Lord to worship and offer sacrifice and express their love to God. Now, if you're taking notes, let's stop right there and write this down if you take notes. Sometimes... That thorn in the flesh will distract you from worshiping God or from going to worship God. You might have plans throughout your day to have some time in in the Word of God to open up your Bible and read, and there might be some type of a distraction, some type of razor-tongued human being that's in your life that causes you just to stop and stay angry to where you can't focus on God's Word. Maybe in your quiet times in the morning, you review the events of the previous day, and you're like, oh, that jerk, man, if I could just get my hands on him. And and, and that distracts you from God's word. And and of course, Satan would want you distracted. Satan doesn't want you worshiping God. I mean, when you think about it, he throws everything out there to keep you from God. And so distractions tend to happen. So, you know, Hannah continues to go. She takes the the heat, and she, she puts up with Penina, and so she doesn't get a chance just to stay home. And so your heart may be like, man, I really feel sorry for Hannah. But here, here's how this applies for us. When we come to the house of the Lord, we can be distracted. And, and you have been distracted. I've seen some of you get distracted. Maybe someone gets up and, and a couple of heads turn and look that direction, or somebody comes in and everybody's all like, man, is that a new shirt that dude's wearing? And, and, and somebody else might be like, is that even in style? You know, and all of a sudden you're distracted. You know, one of my favorite ones are is when I'm looking over here and I'll be talking and then I move this direction. It doesn't always happen on this side because it happens on this side as well. But I'll move over here. I'll see somebody lean over out of the corner of my eye and start whispering something. And I'm like, now I'm distracted because they did something. And then I'll move back and they'll be like, like they've been paying attention the whole time. And I always laugh because for some reason you guys act like I can't see you, but I can I can number you. I can name you. I, I know what you're wearing if you're chewing gum, you know, or the one that I like best is the yawn. Nobody ever wants me to see them yawn. Now, most of you probably will because I'm talking about yawning, and you'll see somebody be like, and they'll do the big yawn, and I'll look over at them, and they're like, <laughs> it's okay. It's all right. And the one that never gets busted is the dude sleeping because he doesn't even know. He's all like, and you're just all like, Really? Praise the Lord, he gets a nap. 
So, have we been distracted? Sure we have. We've all been distracted. Distractions are going to happen. You might even have someone bugging you on the way to church. There might have been a little argument as you pull into the parking lot. And it's like, you know what? Yeah, Satan doesn't want you to focus on his word and what's being taught and said. No way. I mean, think about it. If you had an enemy and they were planning something to defeat you, wouldn't you send some distractions in to make sure that the forces, the armies, couldn't pull off what they needed to pull off right and smoothly? You would send a distraction. And so sometimes that happens. You might even have, you know, a a little argument or, you know, you might be thinking right now, well, you know what, there is that guy and I'm going to call him and let him know. No, no, no. You know, we don't even realize that our, our, it's, it's our lack. There's a lesson in this for us. If you turn real quick with me, we're only going to turn to one place, James chapter one. It's in the New Testament. So if you turn all your pages over to the left, you'll find the book of James. Just keep your finger in, in, in 1 Samuel James chapter 1, verse 17, and this is a verse we're all familiar with, and and you may say, oh, I know this, but don't be distracted because you know it. I I want you to pay careful attention to the second half of verse 17, because this is something I want you to know. Look at verse 17 of James chapter 1. It says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is here it is, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. And if you want to, if you like to write in your Bible, and it's okay, it's a holy book, but it's yours. God wants you to write in it, I'm sure. I, I mark mine up all the time. Highlight, circle, no variation. Highlight or circle, no variation. There's no fickleness is basically what this is saying in God. He does not say, hey, man, I love you, and then say, oh, no, never mind. Forget it. I was just kidding. You know, you might see somebody that's blessed by God. When we look at Hannah's situation, she doesn't seem, it's easy for us to look and say, oh, you know what? She doesn't seem like God's blessed her. Uh, Penina, on the other hand, has been blessed, but it doesn't seem like she's been blessed. But, you know, just hold on there for a second because you will. Because when you see someone that God has blessed, he's not saying, I'm blessing them for no reason or no logic behind it, and I'm not blessing you for whatever reason. That's not what God is saying in that situation when we look at Hannah and Peninnah's situation or even at our own situation. He's not saying that to us that, oh yeah, just because this guy over here, guy A or girl A, is being blessed, but I'm blessing them, you know, and there's just really no reason. God doesn't do that. He's a well-thought-out God. Every book in the Bible holds meaning for us, even in our modern times. In 1 Samuel, for example, Pastor Mark has been teaching us about the power and sovereignty of God. Our Creator does what He needs to in order to accomplish His tasks, regardless of our involvement. How much better would it be, though, if we did step into God's plan for His world? God wants to use each of us to do incredible things for the kingdom. All we need to do is be willing. We're so glad you tuned in today to learn from 1 Samuel. And we'd like to encourage you to keep reading ahead. You'll learn a lot as you discover God for yourself. Another good place to hear and study the Word is in a church setting. Here's Tracy with a little more about what being in the body of Christ can mean for you. Joining a church is more than just showing up for a Sunday morning service. 
It's getting to know the people you're worshiping with. As the church body grows together in the love and teaching of God's Word, it will become a powerful and effective witness for Christ within its walls and beyond. If you're near Katy, Texas, we'd love to meet you Sunday at 10 a.m. at Calvary Katy. Visit comealiveradio.com to find out more and get directions. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast as well to keep up with the latest editions of Come Alive. You can find it on Google Play or iTunes. Thanks for tuning in today to Come Alive.